We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and we continue our 2023 review episodes, recapping how the past season went with a look ahead to this upcoming offseason for the Chicago White Sox and ponder how they could change the roster to compete in 2024. This episode is our final review edition with a look at the White Sox outfielders and catchers. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. For these two positions in particular, before the 2023 season, we were hopeful for an immediate impact from ben- Andrew Benatendi and a dead cat bounce from Yasmani Grandal. Unfortunately, we didn't see either of those things, but at least we got to see Luis Robert Jr. break out. Yeah, uh, well, I would say Grandal was kind of a dead cat bounce, but because he fell so far in 2022, his rebound in 2023 was only like replacement level or like blah. But yeah, I mean, it was a disappointing group as a whole. Like this, you're hoping for some stability in some areas from like say Benintendi to a, a far lesser extent Grandal, and then you thought you might have some upside with right field whether it's Oscar Colas whether it's Eloy Jimenez playing out there and really like all of the upside all of the impact all of the optimism was basically solely concentrated in Luis Robert Jr. which is good for Luis Robert Jr. and bad for basically everybody else. Yeah, so looking at the outfield review, let's start with the good news, and that's Luis Robert Jr. In 2023, for his age 25 season, Robert finally played the majority of a season, 145 games, almost 600 plate appearances for Robert in 2023. He had 595. That is a good sign. He had 144 hits, 36 doubles, 38 home runs, almost a 40-40 season. For Luis Robert, he did have 80 RBIs to tie with Andrew Vaughn for the team lead, and he also led the team with 20 stolen bases. He he had an 857 OPS, and while the on-base percentage was just 315, we never do expect Luis Robert to be a big on-base percentage type of batter. He did slug 542, and using OPS Plus from Baseball Reference, he was at 128, which means that Luis Robert was 28% 
above league average. And Jim, finally, we finally get to see this type of breakout season for Luis Robert uh, that we're all hoping for. So much hype. When when the White Sox did sign him, we got to see it for a month in 2020. We also got to see it for a month in 2021. But we never saw a complete season from Luis Robert. Now that we have at age 25, I think a big question for Luis Robert, is this the start of something, Jim? And by something, I mean this is where he's going to be a perennial all-star for the Chicago White Sox, and he's going to be a consistent four-plus-war type of player. You would hope so, uh, just because everything is there. If he doesn't improve in any regard, whether defensively, plate discipline, he's still very, very valuable as long as he's healthy. And I think that's really just the thing that looms over everything. It seems like he's figured out maybe a working solution with the hand injuries and wrist issues, particularly with sliding that he's you know, made some adjustments doing feet first sliding and taking far fewer chances like diving at bags. And that seemed to help him in terms of his day-to-day viability at the plate. But unfortunately then like he ended up uh, with a knee injury at the end of the year, uh, awkward slide feet first, but on some muddy track in Boston where his you know, spikes seem to get stuck and, uh, tweaked his knee a bit and given how little the White Sox had to play for and how much Robert had already accomplished, he basically finished the year in the injury list, called it good. And he was probably like the only player on the White Sox who could call it good. Everybody else needed every single game to try to save their stats more or less. But yeah, I think when it comes to Robert, like there are some ways he can get better, but I think just as long as he stays healthy, basically stay healthy, but in this case, he actually basically stayed healthy this year. You can actually say it about him. Uh, he's really, really good. And like he does a lot of things well, uh, hits for power, puts the ball in the air, runs the bases well, can steal a bag, plays exceptional defense. So you look at the on-base percentage and the plate discipline and how it can occasionally get away from him for like a series at a time or a week at a time. And you think, okay, that's a weakness. Can't count on that getting better. Now it's time to try to supplement the roster with players who actually uh, accommodate him in that regard. And it was the similar battle they faced with Jose Abreu, right-handed hitter who occasionally the strike zone gets away from him, occasionally gets into ruts against righties. And the White Sox never figured it out. So here's take two with Robert, seeing if they can figure out like how to, with the rest of the lineup spots, or at least you know, a handful of them, bring in some lefties, bring in some guys who don't strike out, bring in some guys who get on base to where like Robert's key flaw isn't something that hampers the roster because he shouldn't be counted upon to do everything. I mean, if he's ever going to have a 350 on base percentage, Jim, that's the season where he hits 300. Now, it is possible yeah. for Robert to do that, but it's very similar to Tim Anderson, which we've talked about for years, is that Anderson's never going to walk. He's never going to develop that skill to take the free base. Uh, so if he's ever going to have a suitable uh, base percentage that you would want from a leadoff hitter, he's going to have to hit for average. And when Anderson was rolling, he did. And I think Robert can be a 300 type of hitter, it's just a scary thought because he batted 264 this season. And if he were to increase that number by what, 36 points and with the type of power that he has, I mean, you are talking about a 40, 40 type of player and maybe he steals more than 20 bags 
and he is still a Gold Glove nominee in center field. Like, I still believe this, Jim, and I, I don't think I'm crazy. I know the American League can be stacked with high-quality type of players, but I still believe Luis Robert Jr. is an MVP caliber type of talent. And those obviously don't grow in trees. And obviously the White Sox have a very time developing these types of players. So from that perspective, there's no way in the world anyone should entertain the idea of trading Luis Robert. Now, in baseball... You need more than just Luis Robert to win. And we have seen too many White Sox teams in the last 10 years, Jim, have excellent talent surrounded by duds. And looking at this free agency class, I know we are like a parrot right now. We keep repeating this. This free agency class on the position player side is awful. If you don't think the White Sox are going to be good the next two years, Jim, with the offseason plan projects coming up on SoxMachine.com, is this the offseason? Is this the time you trade Luis Robert away and kick off another rebuild? It feels a little bit too early just because there is a path. And, you know, I don't want to sound like Chris gets here to say like the central is weak, but like as long <laughs> as, you know, the division is there, like there's no reason to like tear it all down. Like say Colson Montgomery comes up and he looks good then you'd feel kind of like a dope for trading Luis Robert, like safe, like, cause Montgomery offers what Robert doesn't left-handed bat, uh, great on base percentage uh, helps with the middle infield picture. Even if he has to slide over to a different position, like he'll still help like Brian Ramos. Let's say like, he's okay. Like all of a sudden, like some of the issues you had are suddenly solved. And now you trade Luis Robert, you like trade for like double a prospects or something like that. Then you, kind of waste the opening moments of maybe Montgomery's window. So like, I think there's still an overlap here to where like Robert Montgomery, the two best position player prospects you've had. And certainly Montgomery, like the the best position player prospect they've drafted. Like they have a little bit of time to overlap and a lot of payroll is coming off the books with Moncada coming out, uh, coming off with you know, Jimenez maybe coming off if he's not anything like to where they can supplement them. So it does strike me as like a little bit early, especially since like Robert might not be selling high yet because this is the first season he's only played. Uh, this is only the first season he played hundred games. So like there may be teams saying like, why are they trying to get out from under Robert? Like, why are they, you know, do they think that he's not going to stay healthy and they're selling high? So I think they don't have to, uh, you know, get out from under that contract. I mean, it's a case where like he's so valuable in the field that like he has a lot of margin for error in terms of like how affordable that contract extension is. Whereas Jimenez does not you're right now. Jimenez, he, uh, he wasted his margin for error basically with the last couple of years where they're supposed to be the affordable ones. And now he's making eight figures and has to produce at a level of a very good, if not all-star left fielder slash DH. So like that's, you know, Robert doesn't have to worry about that as long as he's healthy because he plays that good of a uh, center field. So that's why I think like there's room for him to still be on the White Sox. But I would say like after next year, maybe if, you know, say Montgomery's back, you know, starts bothering him again, or there are some like existential crises for the White Sox that money can't solve, then yeah, maybe you do have to say like, well, we have to roll it over to whatever the next 
core is, whether that's like Noah Schultz and Jacob Gattels or what have you. But I think it's not quite that dire yet to, to trade Robert because you can still trade him for full value over the next few acquisition periods, the deadline, uh, the winter, and then the next deadline even. Yeah, the White Sox have control of Luis Robert through the 2027 season. I, I think it's a bit of a crazy idea, but again... We're doing these podcast reviews and we're talking about things that a lot of you will be going through the mental exercises and the mental gymnastics when you're filling out your off-season plan projects on SoxMachine.com. Maybe some of you are entertaining, entertaining the idea of trading Robert. He does have four years left, $67.5 million on the contract with the White Sox. The final two years, the final $40 million of that contract are club options. So, Jim, I don't think it's necessarily Chris Getz would push Luis Robert out there and let everyone know in Major League Baseball that Luis Robert Jr. is available via trade. But if I am a team that is on the cusp, let's say I'm the Arizona Diamondbacks, and I see Luis Robert as four years, $67.5 million left in the contract, and I have a lot of young talent on my team. I mean, you just took our farm director. <laughs> like, I would pick up the phone and call. Like, I don't think it's necessarily the White Sox shopping Luis Robert, mm -hmm. but I've got to imagine many contending teams or teams that think they will be contending in 2024, they would be the ones picking up the phone and calling because we, we talked about it in previous episodes uh, with Cody Bellinger and how I think that's like the perfect target for the White Sox, that there's no way in the world that Jerry Reinsdorf is going to fork over the money to be able to sign Cody Bellinger. So it's just a, a dream at this point. But for the teams that don't sign for Cody Bellinger and if they need help in the outfield, they need help in center field. Man, I, I'd be picking up the phone and see if you can get Luis Robert off the Chicago White Sox for four years, $67.5 million. Mm -hmm. If he continues to perform like he did in 2023, that's a steal. That's a steal of a contract. Yeah, and I think it's not insulting either or a dumb or a waste of a call to do that because the White Sox could be facing some kind of uh, large-scale teardown even if like Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't want to admit it might have to happen. Just I think really it comes down to like how soon can Colson Montgomery – be ready responsibly, you know, not rush him up for the sake of propping up Luis Robert, but just like if he is like, if really the back strain was not like anything structural with his back, but just like a bad luck muscle issue. And the oblique was tied to that. And just a full off season, we'll put that completely in his rear view mirror and starts the year in Birmingham. But then like, you know, he gets to Charlotte and that looks like a waste of time. Like perhaps by the end of next year, like, Montgomery looks like somebody who can run with Robert and be like a uh, you know real core complementary star to Robert's own skill set. Um, but like if that doesn't happen, like it does make sense for another team to lay the groundwork, even if they don't expect a deal to get done this winter. You know, talk about it like, well, let's let's put some players on their radar on the White Sox radar to follow during the 2024 season. And if the deadline rolls around and we really need an outfielder and the White Sox are going nowhere and it doesn't look like Roberts, you know, or, or the next wave of talent is imminent, like maybe all of a sudden that uh, conversation becomes way more appealing or, or easier to stomach for not only Chris Getz and Jerry Reinsdorf, but White Sox fans as well, who are just like, there's really nothing here. So I get it. You know, I, I can see the appeal of like, 
thinking about what the White Sox farm system looked like or like the, the window of contention or what have you. But I still think there's time for slow roll discussions to happen of just we're thinking about it. We'd like to, you know, we, he makes sense at four years and 67 million. He makes sense at three years and I'm not going off the top of my head, like 57 million. He makes sense at two. Like it's not a case of like his contract is going to blow up. And like this is the affordable year that Luis Robert needs to make the rest of his contract uh, understandable for any team. Like there's still a window here to where like, just uh, start some trade talks just in case it really gets dark for the White Sox. And I don't think it's quite there yet because I still think they're working through some stuff. Yeah, I do wonder if Luis Robert is on the track of Jose Abreu where the White Sox just pretty much punt Abreu's prime years. <laughs> where the best seasons for Luis Robert Jr. are going to be on the worst White Sox teams. And when the White Sox look like they're going to be pretty decent, then Luis Robert is, you know, falling out of his prime years. Like, that's... You want to be the best that you could be to take advantage of Luis Roberts' prime years because of everything that he could yeah. do on and the they field. thought they were going to. It's just, <laughs> yeah, and they thought they were going to, and unless somebody, unless other players step up. So, again, Luis Robert, the least of the White Sox worries going into 2024, and all you're hoping is, can you please duplicate what you did in 2023, Luis Robert? Now, moving over to left field, Andrew Benatendi. Jim, was 2023 a failure for Andrew Benatendi? And what does 2024 have to look like for him to be considered, quote unquote, good? Yeah, it was a failure. I think anytime like you're closer to replacement level than like average, uh, uh, the defense was bad. The OBP was there for some of the season, but then it was 299 in the second half. So even that tailed off. The power never materialized. He just you know, ran the base as well, which is the other thing he was supposed to uh, do. But he, you know, didn't really get on base to use it all that much in the second half. So it was more or less a lost season, which is really troubling when it's the first year of a five year, seventy five million dollar deal. And like all the hand wringing and uh, angst over the Yasmani Grandal contract like that followed the game plan for at least the first two years like Grandal was really good in his first year he was good uh around an injury so like yeah when he when he was on the field he produced exceptionally but like he did uh have an injury that ate into some of his value in his second year but even then that was good third year was just a disaster fourth year looked like the fourth year should have looked like all along when you're signing like a catcher in his mid-30s you should look at Grandal's contract and say like we got to figure out what 2023 looks like in case he just can't answer the bell anymore. So like the season he had was the kind of season I expected when he signed the contract. I just didn't expect 2022 to be as bad as it was uh, just because of not only the injuries he had, but just how the White Sox were so unconcerned with how hurt he was. And there was a similar thing with Benintendi where the hand injury, the, the, the broken hammock that ended, ended his year at the Yankees the previous season and the White Sox come in and sign him and like, the White Sox have a tendency to do this, like Kelvin Herrera with his foot injury, Joe Kelly with his bicep nerve, uh, with the Dodgers, Jeff Kepinger with his shoulder injury in the offseason. Like, tend to sign these guys knowing they had some kind of injury that ended their previous season and say, like, well, we can work past it. And then, sure enough, like, they don't look good. And, like, even Jose Rodriguez, who had a Hammett 
uh, injury, broken hand at the end of his year with Birmingham, like his power in production is really set for the first like one and a half months of the season. So like, I think they're kind of parallel tracks and cautionary tales of just like that. You have to take these injuries seriously and say like, well, they might be able to swing the bat technically and might be worth playing, but their impact is going to be delayed. And so with Benintendi, like he got on base, but just like the, the contact was not scary. It was kind of wet newspaper-ish. Right. And like for a while, he didn't even threaten a homer. It wasn't even like that he didn't hit one. It's not like even like the, oh, he got a load of, he, 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 he got all of that one. And you think it's just going to hook foul, like threaten like maybe section 106 uh, or, or no, that'd be 110, like a little bit uh, sections over around the foul pole from 108. And then like it falls like maybe 20 feet short of the foul pole in the foul, like even like his good looking contact wasn't going anywhere. So I think you can blame the hand injury for that. You can't, um, you know, I would push more of the blame onto Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams thinking like, well, they, they thought they were, uh, you know, cutting a corner here and thinking they were very clever boys for signing somebody who uh, would take a $75 million deal to solve a problem. And like, that's not problem solving money anymore for, especially for the White Sox. Um, so like, that's why I'm, I'm not necessarily personally blaming him too much. I think like when it comes to this year, this is the year where like, you can't blame, I mean, maybe you can't blame Rick on Kenny Williams, but they're not there anymore. Uh, you know, Chris gets, uh, he's inheriting the situation. Hopefully he's not inheriting a problem, but this would be the year that you can't blame the hand injury anymore. So it's now a matter of like, was that power real or was that power something that only existed two years ago or like a younger man's, uh, yeah, like was it a younger man's clothes basically? And now Benintendi as he approaches 30 into his early thirties, is just kind of this punch hitter gap to gap guy gets on base. Can't be counted upon play defense anymore necessarily because he didn't look good out there. And now what do you have? It's like, that's an even worse contract than Grandal's by far, because even if Grandal was a flawed defender, he did some things well defensively. Like Benintendi, he doesn't seem to read the ball well, like his routes aren't good, and he doesn't have an arm. So he doesn't have like Grandal's framing that helps you make an argument as to like what he brings defensively. Yeah, for Andrew Benintendi, again, he had 262 with a 326 on base percentage. Slugging 356, so to Jim's point, the wet paper for a bat. Uh, really pitiful slugging percentage, and we all know on how important slugging percentage is in today's game of baseball. So it's a 682. Especially for left field only. Yeah, right. It's a 682 OPS, an 87 OPS plus for Andrew Benatendi. So back to the question of what would be a good 2024 season, like looking ahead, like is a... 105 OPS or weighted runs creative plus a two war season, either on fan graphs and baseball reference.com. Is that good enough, Jim, for Andrew Benatendi? I would say something approaching like his 2022, uh, 120 OPS plus, uh, got to like an OPS above 750. Uh, there was more OBP than slugging, but either one would help this White Sox team. So even if he's not somebody who's going to slug like over 400 by far, you know, clear it with any kind of comfort that makes him like there is a real left fielder. At least he, you know, hit 304. He 
you know, he got on base. He got hit by some pitches. Actually, that year he didn't get hit by pitches. It's all walks. But, like, he managed to be somebody who could take, you know, like, the homers weren't necessarily there, but he had doubles. He had triples. He stole some bases. Like, he ran it well. So, I think there's, like, a version of Benintendi that's good, and it all amounts to, like, a three-win player, a four-win player. But that requires a defense to come around a little as well. And even if you say like, well, Luis Robert Jr. is so good at ranging to right center that like Benintendi's metrics might be hurt a little bit by not making exceptional plays going to deep left center because Robert covers that ground. Like I can see that, but like even just the the other metrics, like, you know, the going in, going back, going to his right, uh, the jump uh, metrics on StatCast, like they were all pretty much like mediocre at best. So that's why, like, I think you have to see some kind of rebound in his outfield play. And hopefully it's not a case or like, hopefully it is a case rather of just like him doing his best around a wrist issue. And then like eventually the white Sox caving in and Griffol being a non-entity and him just saying like, I'm not really seeing it this year. I'm just getting through this year. I'm considering it lost. I'm not a hundred percent. Like I'm just going to, kind of punch the clock, come in, try not to screw up too much, <laughs> you know, like not be uh, noticeable, uh, not be the team's biggest problem. And he wasn't the team's biggest problem. And when I wrote about Ben and today's defense, I got like some comments saying like, well, wh- why are you writing about him when everything else is worse? It's like, well, it's September. I've written about everything that's worse. I finally got around <laughs> to writing about Ben and Tendi. Like yeah. he is kind of the least of the problems or at least a lesser problem. So that's why like he wasn't, you know, an urgent issue aside from like the lack of home runs, which I wrote about. Uh, so that's, I think why you have to see the defense improve because that does help prop up his like overall contributions to the team. So that's why two wins is enough because I think two wins means like he's not doing anything defensively, which you have to do if you're left field only and you're signed to be left field only, and you don't have anybody playing right field right now. For the White Sox, Ben and Robert, again, they're under control for the next four seasons. So we don't expect... Robert to be moved this offseason, and of course, nobody's going to take on Andrew Benatendi and his contract remaining of the last four years after he signed a five-year deal last year. So they're the mainstays in the outfield, but there's a lot of questions about who is going to be in right field and who's going to be behind the plate for the White Sox in 2024, and I think that's where a bulk of the work is going to have to be with everyone's offseason plan projects. We'll talk about right field and the catching position after a quick word from our sponsors. When I saw the Milwaukee Bucks make that big trade with Portland for Damian Lillard, I immediately went on game time to see when they were playing the Chicago Bulls. Saw it was on November 30th, and game time had great seats in the 300 level right at center court in the United Center. Great tickets at a great price. I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use game time to purchase your tickets. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, and theater near you they've got killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets if you find tickets in the same section and even row for less money game time will credit you 110 percent of the difference that's why game time is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country download the game time app create your account and get 20 dollars off your first purchase using our promo code socks machine Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game time. Last-minute tickets. Lowest prices. Guaranteed. 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Coming after the break in three, two, one. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, so let's talk about right field for the Chicago White Sox. And Jim, a trivia question for you. And this would kind of make it a painful sporkle. How many different players the White Sox had make starts in right field in 2023? Hmm. Eight? Eleven. Mm. Eleven different players started a game at right field for the Chicago White Sox. Six of them made ten or more starts. Oscar Colas led the White Sox with 69 starts in right field. Gavin Sheets made 68 starts in right field. Clint Frazier, third on the list with 26 starts in right field. Adam Hazley, I keep forgetting he played for the White Sox in 2023. He made 16 starts. Eloy Jimenez made 14 starts. And Trace Thompson, bless his soul, made 13 starts after the White Sox acquired him from the Los Angeles Dodgers. And then Jake Marisnik made starts out there. Zach Remillard, Billy Hamilton, and who could forget the Tyler Naquin start? in right field for the White Sox in 2023. So 11 different players made a start at right field for the White Sox, and the result was expected when you have that many faces playing at right field when Oscar Colas and Gavin Sheets are well below replacement value when it comes to war. Right field is still a mess, and it might be even a bigger mess because now – Rightfully so. There are some serious questions about the staying power for Oscar Colas moving forward. Jim, like, what do you think the plan is for the White Sox going into this offseason for right field? Because reviewing right field in 2023, I don't think is worth the the pain and the emotional damage to talk through that again. Mm-hmm. Because everyone was awful. And it was so bad. Like I mentioned, I'm wondering that if Oscar Colas is plan A again, what does that mean for the near future for the Chicago White Sox? Yeah, Gavin Sheets and Oscar Colas had about like a full season's worth of plate appearances between them, and they were worth negative 2.9 wins above replacement or with 2.9 wins below replacement between them. So, yeah, it's... I think Colas has the possibility to be like a major like dividing point, like fault line on this roster or in the organization, or maybe like it's revealed that he was like among the fault lines within the organization before Kenny Williams and Rick Hahn got fired because like going back to November, that's when like Colas was like, 
presented as plan A for right field versus like plan B or like uh, starting the year in Charlotte, but like if a couple emergencies you know happen, uh, then he's going to have to be called up and thrown into the fire. Like that was basically November. Like they went their entire off season. They mapped it out to where like, oh, we're not going to solve right field. We think you can do it. And then, you know, when Andy Barquette was fired from the, being the White Sox minor league hitting coordinator, um, he told the White Sox daily podcast that like, he didn't think Colossus is ready. He needed more, uh, trial and error and failure in the minor leagues because like the plate approach wasn't quite there. So like, I'm not sure whether that's revisionist history a little bit or wanting to, you know, maybe separate himself from, uh, maybe the most smoldering of failures, uh, on the roster, or maybe it's a case where like there was a camp, um, Barquette and others in the Meyer leagues. Maybe Chris Getz was in that camp of saying like, I'm not sure about this. Like, I don't think he's ready yet. And like Rick Hahn saying, we're doing it. You know, like I can see, you know, based on the way Griffol managed him the whole year and was like putting him through his paces in spring training and, you know, kind of playing hard ass on him going uh, all the way back to February. Uh, even when guys were in the World Baseball Classic and there's all the playing time, like, you know, later on, we'd learn that Griffol only managed guys with fewer than two years of service time. Like, he wasn't interested in managing veterans. Like, he didn't uh, have the uh, gravitas to do that. But, at the, you know, early on before all that was established or before the season went to the toilets and he didn't have the credibility to do that, like, he was even, you know, hard on Colas. So I'm really curious... Like whether I could see all sorts of things being the case, like Colas goes back to Charlotte, is treated as a prospect again, treated as like last year never happened, but also that he was never plan A in the first place. And they're trying to go back to September 2022 to where like, oh, he's interesting. Let's make him earn it in Charlotte this year. Or I could see it being on the opposite side to where like he's already just kind of a non-entity. Uh, and nobody wants to deal with them anymore based on the way things happened. And they're just going to try to, you know, see if he can boost his value in Charlotte and see if he tr you know, can be traded at any point. Like, I think all things are available right now. So I'm really curious what the rhetoric is going to be around Colas because like now that Chris Getz is here, like is Chris Getz beholden to him? Does he feel like, uh, you know, was there indeed this rift between player development and the top of the front office with regards to Colossus readiness or his ability to handle failure at the major league level. Like I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And it's really the only way that Colossus is interesting right now, because like the way he played, like just nothing went right. And his at bats weren't worth watching. Yeah. It is disappointing because in 2022 in three levels, Colossus and high a double a and triple a combined hit 314 with a 371 on base percentage and slug 524 he hit really well in birmingham that's what gave me some confidence because he had like a 928 ops in birmingham and for a lot of white Sox prospects that's the brick wall they have a difficult time hitting in double a and Colossus did he stayed on lefties too like he right he, it wasn't just mashing righties like he actually stay on lefties and hit them for average too so that's why i was uh, fairly bullish on him, even if not as a plan A, just thought as maybe a contributor at some point in the second half of 2023. I'm just, there's a lot of things that I'm concerned about. You have new hitting coaches coming in and we, at the this point when we're recording the podcast, we don't know who the new White Sox hitting coaches are uh, that Pedro Grafal is bringing in. 
we know that Colas was in Pedro Grafal's doghouse pretty much the entire season. Like, I don't know, to your point, Jim, I don't know if Grafal thinks highly of Oscar Colas uh, off the field, but on the field, that was like the one player that Grafal had no point, uh, no problem, I should say, calling him out to the media that he needs to work on some things while everybody else was greatly struggling. And Grafal would often say, I'm not even thinking about that. He was thinking about Colossus a lot last year, and you know Colossus hitting 216, 257 on base percentage and slugging 314. That's a whopping 571 OPS. He hit just five home runs for the White Sox in 75 games. Very disappointing. Very disappointing season for Oscar Colossus. He turns 25 this upcoming season. Remember, I just said Luis Robert is 25 uh, in 2023. Luis Robert will be 26 in 2024. So Colas is like a year younger than Luis Robert uh, on the age curve. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of questions, though, because Colas, Colas not only missed 2020, but he also missed 2021 seasons. There was a huge break between him playing in Japan and him playing in the States. He is now a little bit on the older side. So to your point, like, do Chris Getz and Josh Barfield decide collectively we need to hit the reset button on Oscar Colas, and he we need to plan on him not being plan A, and he needs to be in Charlotte, and he should expect to be in Charlotte for almost the entire season unless we have a huge need because of injury. And even if that player heals up, Colossus is probably not going to stay up with the team. He'll be sent back to Charlotte. Like, if he needs more experience then, or more seasoning on the field, then I can understand where that's coming from from Getz and Barfield. But again, Colossus is 25 years old, and he's going to be entering his prime years supposedly in, in baseball terms. So it's one of those things that I'm just wondering, like you either got it or you don't. And maybe Oscar Colossus is just a quadruple A type of player, Jim, where, yeah, he rakes against minor league pitching, but when he gets to the major leagues, X, Y, Z reason, he just forgets how to hit. Also, the defense was bad. Like that's what <laughs> surprised me as well is like, he looked really um, unprepared for the speed, uh, speed of the major league game in right field, like a lot of rushed actions early on, like a lot of bobbled balls, uh, not collecting them, trying to make throws. Then that seemed to manifest into over caution to where like he'd really round off a ball in the gap to make sure like that it was like, that was his way of slowing the game down was to like literally have the ball approaching him slower. So like rounding it <laughs> to where uh, the ball would be losing some steam. He could gather himself, but then like he would give up extra bases that way, or he would, not get to a ball because the route was so generous. So that's the other thing that was baffling was not only like the way the plate approach uh, just uh, deteriorated on him, but also just the lack of uh, like pace, I would say in right field, just the ability to adjust to the major league game was really, you know, and that's why like when I look at Colos and then you see that Chris gets the director of player development is now the GM versus uh, Chris gets being in the uh, uh, line of fire or, you know, needing to find a new job because like players did not develop with the white Sox. Like you'd look at Colos and say like, what happened here? Like why did even like his athleticism, which people thought was pretty good. Why did that not uh, manifest itself at the major league level to where like he was a terrible outfielder as well as a terrible hitter. He's got a good arm. 
Yeah. When he hits the cutoff or it reaches its destination, but I mean, he could chuck it. There's, there's no question about that. They, the throwing arm is strong. The throwing accuracy could use some work and throwing to the right base and knowing which base he's supposed to throw to could also use some work. But if there's anything that Oscar Colas does well, he throws the ball very hard. Uh, but there's a lot of work to be done. Or I just, I don't know. Again, he hit so well in 2022 down in the minor leagues and he still hit pretty well in Charlotte in 2023 when he was at AAA, 54 games, 272 batting average, 345 on base percentage, slugged 465 with nine home runs and 14 doubles. But then again, it's Charlotte and it's AAA and it's really hard to buy into those type of numbers, especially from the International League, but they're not terrible numbers. It just, again, it is baffling on why Oscar Colas, who I had confidence because he hit a double A and triple A 2022 would do would far better, fare better than he did this year. And he did not. So it's a lot of questions for the white Sox coming to 2024 in this off season. And what do they have with Oscar Colas and how Colas fits into any plans. But with that being said, Jim is the starting right fielder part of the 40 man roster or in the farm system for the Chicago white Sox, Jim, or is this something that Chris gets and, his front office staff, they're just, they're going to have to find someone to play right field in the off season. seems like it has to be on the shopping list of like Trace Thompson is getting all those starts at the end of the year. And Trace Thompson did nothing to deserve those starts. Like he had a 37 OPS plus batted 171 struck out 40 times in 92 plate appearances. And yet he was getting the starts because like, not sure. Like that was like among the cases of like, uh, you know, because the white Sox had so many problems and Trace Thompson was a, an inessential employee to where like nobody really thought much about him. So he was just making every start. He played a good defensive right field, made some, you know, fine plays and didn't draw attention to himself in the field to where like that was good enough. But like Gavin Sheets is like the one guy I think will be, it'll be interesting to see like what the White Sox think of him because the one thing that keeps him afloat is that when runners are in scoring position or like bases are loaded and you need like a good at bat. He provides good at bats. Like he's good with the bases loaded. Like when um, you just don't want to see somebody like get over aggressive and flail away and chase pitches out of the zone. Like Gavin Sheets doesn't do that. And I was, you know, I had this hunch during the year, like, oh, Gavin Sheets is up good. And then I looked it up just to see if that was actually anything to it or whether he was mediocre, but everybody else is worse. And like, no, he was very good with runners in scoring position. 8 808 OPS uh, in such situations, more walks than strikeouts with runners in scoring position. With the bases loaded, uh, he was six for eight. Like he he really zeroed in uh, close and late. Two outs, or sorry, two outs with runners in scoring position, uh, 889 OPS. Uh, close and late was, you know, mediocre, but high leverage, 887 OPS. So like he was, he provided some high impacted bats like in key situations, which is why I think, you know, among other reasons, like the lack of competition, but why the White Sox are either willing to overlook what he doesn't do everywhere else, or just because like he's the best of what's left. But I think just that knack of like being able to drive in a run here and there and not look overmatched when like you just need a fly ball. Like he's very good at delivering the fly ball. Like, four sack for a slice flies and like part-time duty this year. Like that's probably uh, maybe a team leading rates based on how the White Sox struggled to get the ball in the air. 
that's, I think, yeah, he uh, led the team despite being a part-time player and sacrifice flies. So like he does those things well to where when he, when everything else is on fire, like I can understand why Pedro Grofold feel like, yeah, I guess, I guess sheets because he at least, you know, he, he doesn't make me, I look forward to him coming to the plate when we need a run to score in a, risk situation or like a runner on third situation, which I think not enough white Sox can say about themselves. I was contemplating cutting Gavin sheets of my off season plan project, but yeah, I mean like <laughs> he should be like in a normal roster, like he just doesn't fit anywhere, but like, that's the one thing where like, that's what I think people overlook or people, you know, I mean, overlook just, you know, it's, yeah, I can understand or I can empathize with Griffold to an extent, even Tony La Russa previously and like running him out there because like the at bats when you want to, when you like can least afford a terrible at bat, Sheets is the best at avoiding them. I think among any White Sox player, especially like lefty versus righty, like, you know, he's a lefty facing tough righties. Like you don't mind having him up there. And I think that's really a team that was better about finding left-handed bats and finding guys who could hit righties. Like you wouldn't care about that so much, but as long as the roster is this thin, I can see that sustaining him for at least another spring training season opening spot on 26 man roster. And then like, hopefully at some point expectations actually kick in. Yeah. I don't think the starting right fielder is currently on the 40 man roster for the Chicago white Sox. So I look forward to everyone's off season plans uh, and your, Creativity on addressing right field for the Chicago White Sox and what type of player that you acquire to play that position. Because I just, I don't think it's Oscar Colas. I don't think it's going to be Gavin Sheets. I don't think it's going to be the other nine guys that I mentioned. No, I don't think Eloy Jimenez is going to be the starting right fielder for the Chicago White Sox. Yeah, I, I just, I don't think it's, I don't think that guy's on the team right now. So good luck. Find that right fielder. And while you're looking for a right fielder, I think you might want to look for a catcher as well because with Yasmani Grandal and Sevi Zavala also gone, he was waived during the season and he latched on with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And we saw Corey Lee and Carlos Perez at the end of the season, Jim. Is it wise to roll into this offseason with the mindset that, yeah, these two, Corey Lee and Carlos Perez, are our main catchers? Uh, no, uh, I would say like Perez, like, I don't know why the White Sox, I don't know if it's probably too strong to say they dislike him, but they're not enamored with him. If like, they're not giving him the playing time when Grandal looks done, they're not giving the playing time necessarily when like Zavala isn't hitting, uh, even when Corey Lee came up, Lee seemed to be their first priority and Perez was an afterthought. Like you look at his, his at bats and like, they're fine for a catcher. Like the, the contact ability still, uh, it made the jump from AAA to uh, the majors. The contact quality is lacking uh, for the most part, but, but he did hit a home run, hit some doubles. So like he was able to capitalize on some mistakes. And like by the end of the year, he started looking like, oh, he's somebody who can help maybe. Or like, you know, for a catcher hitting eighth or ninth, you can certainly do worse. Uh, defense is like the, the framing needs work. The blocking's okay. The arm is not strong, but the pop time seems okay to where like he can occasionally throw a guy out. So I didn't see any necessarily fatal flaws 
that made me think like, you know, why isn't Perez getting some priority or why isn't he getting like three weeks of starts being the number one catcher? Instead, like Corey Lee seemed to jump him. And like I watched Lee play in Charlotte and the timing didn't look there. Like the strikes, you know, striking out a lot. The contact was poor, like pop-ups, grounders, uh, not, you know, putting a sweet spot on the ball. And like, there were some people clamoring for Corey Lee saying like, you just cut ground all get Lee up here. And I was saying like, no, I'm not I think Lee's ready yet. Had the strained oblique, yeah. give him some time. And then the white Sox called him up like, all right, so, so what do I know? And then you watch him hit like, okay, I feel better about myself as a scout given how well he hit or didn't hit uh, with the white Sox. And like, you can see why Lee is appealing because like he blocks pretty well. The arms pretty good. Uh, he runs really well for catcher. So like there's an athlete behind the plate, but in terms of hitting, like the bat just doesn't get where it needs to go and framing isn't good or anything to write home about. So like, I don't see somebody you want catching regularly right now based on the skill set. Like he either needs to frame a lot better or he needs to hit measurably better to be like even a second catcher right now. So if they don't care for Perez for one reason or another, and like Lee showed what he shows, then yeah, I mean, they have Edgar Caro, they have uh, Adam Hackenberg who made some nice strides last year. Like they have some guys who might be able to help uh, catch some major league games at the end of 2024, 2025. But for like the first half, which I think you have to count on at least the first half, uh, yeah, like this pairing, like Perez as a second catcher, I think is not bad. Like, I think I like him more than the White Sox do. But Lee, like based on what he showed, unless there's some kind of turnaround or whether like the oblique was really hampering him more than what he showed. And given that the Astros traded him for Kendall Graveman, who really hasn't helped them a whole lot. Um, I don't think, yeah, I'm thinking like they might not have thought Lee was all that great either. So that's why... I'm not inclined to give him a whole lot of weight when trying to pencil out the White Sox future. Yeah, it really does feel like Salvador Perez is going to be the target, isn't it? Because. Yep. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of pointing there to be like, yeah, the major league catcher now. And then Edgar Caro needs like a, a shepherd. And yep. Yeah. I, I just I don't think this starting catchers on the roster either for the Chicago White Sox, because uh, to your point, like with Carlos Perez, they don't maybe they don't think highly of him. I, I'm not sure, or they're doubtful about his defensive ability behind home plate. He just played 27 games for the White Sox. In the 24 games that Corey Lee played for the White Sox, he was worth negative 0.7 WAR, and his weighted runs created plus was negative 27. Negative 27. Yes, it can go below zero for weighted runs created plus. It means he was 127% below league average offensively, where his on base percentage was just 143 and his slugging percentage was worse, despite having a 7.1% walk rate. And yes, he does block well. Framing is okay. He does have a good pop time, but his caught stealing above average wasn't all that great, so he needs to work on his accuracy. But the pop time for Corey Lee is excellent. 1.91 seconds last year, and his blocks above average is two runs above average, so that's good. So I think defensively you have the makings of a major league catcher, but he's so bad swinging the bat that 
I don't think he could be a starter, which then brings into the conversation of, so what do they give up to Kansas City for Salvador Perez to be the starting catcher? In 2024, even though I think the White Sox should go in the route of aiming for guys like Mitch Garver of Texas, who didn't catch a lot because they had Jonah Heim. Gary Sanchez seems to find a second wind here. And uh, Victor Caratini of the Milwaukee Brewers. I I think these three would be better options and cheaper options uh, than Salvador Perez, Jim. Yeah, uh, I'm not going to even indulge the question of um, what the White Sox should give up for Perez, because that feels too close to endorsing the idea at all. So even if it does feel like, you know, to wrap this up that like, yeah, Sal Perez is the catcher, Whit Merrifield's the right fielder, uh, Royals to patch all the problems. Like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to be associated with whatsoever. And I don't want to be like, Oh, so you nailed the price on Sal Perez. Like, I don't even want to even try hazard a guess because it just feels like, uh, I want to rage against the dying of that light. (laughs) we'll see what the white Sox actually do but when it comes to this review episode you know watching the 2023 season it's pretty clear the white Sox they probably don't have their starting right fielder or starting catcher currently on the roster so when you're working on your offseason plan projects for socksmachine.com you'll need to address those two positions center field and left field as we talked about in the first half of this episode with both andrew benatendi and luis robert under contract for at least four more team years uh, with the Chicago White Sox, that it's probably likely that neither are going to be moved by the Chicago White Sox, even though we did play out that hypothetical of what it happens if a team does call and they want to try to get Luis Robert. Uh, don't think it's likely. So there you go. You got left field and center field taken care of. Just got to figure out right field, catching, second base, what you're going to do at shortstop. Again, you could go through those episodes in our previous episodes where we reviewed the infield and starting pitching as well. There's a lot of work to be done during the offseason plan for the Chicago White Sox and on SoxMachine.com. And those plans and that activity will be starting soon after this podcast is released. So we're very excited to get that kicked off. We'll have a Sox Machine live episode to officially kick off the Sox Machine offseason plan project on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Machine. So look forward to our promotions for that kickoff. But Jim, I think we could officially forget about 2023 now. We reviewed everything. Oh, except for the bullpen. Our bullpen review, who cares? It didn't work. <laughs> Stop spending money on relievers. End of story. There you go. That was also your bullpen review for 2023. But now we can look forward and try to wash away all the nastiness of the 2023 season and look ahead to what could happen and how the new front office shapes this 2024 roster. Yep. Sounds about right. I mean, like, yeah, with the bullpen, given the um, volatility of relievers and given that none of the White Sox relievers who they brought up at the end of the year look anything close to elites to where you can bank on them for three years. Like I think it's going to be revolving doors uh, probably at least like four or five of those spots, you know, if not more, but yeah, for the timeline, you will have the Sox machine live on Thursday and then we'll launch the off season plan project on Friday, probably like around 10 AM. I'll you know work on the template. I'll work on the budget and uh, make sure that the you know, post submission screen is all good to go. But yeah, that's the timeline. So Start penciling stuff down and uh, get ready for Friday morning. Yeah, and that Friday morning, by the way, is October 27th for those that listen to this podcast at a 
at a later time. And uh, especially if you catch up or you're catching up a podcast, you listen to this two weeks after it's released and you haven't filled out your off-season plan project, you'd still have time to do so on SoxMachine.com. So we look forward to that. We hope that these review episodes helped you guys out as far as some of the conversations that you'll have to be and questions that you have to answer during your offseason plan project, no matter which direction you want to take the White Sox, whether that's trying to contend and win the American League Central in 2024 or a start of another rebuild with a different front office this time. Can't wait to see them. And again, we'll have that kickoff show at Sox Machine live on Thursday, October 26th on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you could discover, you could subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcast episodes into our YouTube channel, which I just mentioned at youtube.com slash Socks Machine. You can follow us on social media. We're everywhere at Socks Machine, and I'm there at Socks Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They also receive ad-free versions of both the podcast website, we're going to be having our annual town hall as well with our Patreon supporters, uh, where we kind of open up the curtain uh, to show you guys and how things are ran at SoccerSheet.com. And Jim and I share what we're planning for the upcoming calendar year in 2024. So again, if you do enjoy our work and you want to help support us and you want more from us, sign up at patreon.com slash SoccerSheet, where monthly plans start at $2 a month, or you could save with an annual subscription. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.